Well, if you've ever been to court, if you've ever had jury duty, if you've ever been called up on the stand, or even if you've just watched Matlock, you, you know about giving a testimony. How a testimony is a written or spoken recounting of what you have either experienced or what you have seen or heard. It's telling what went down from your perspective. And testimonies are notoriously unreliable. People oftentimes contradict, and in fact, the police are suspicious if they're not contradictory. I mean, it's like they're cooking up something. So we expect that people's mind is affected and their emotions are affected when they're witnessing things that go down. In our life, we witness a whole lot of things. Think about what, what you saw just yesterday, what happened to you yesterday. And most of the time, it just passes in and out. You don't remember it at all unless someone starts asking you specific questions about it. But every now and then, something happens that's really big, and it sticks out in your mind. And it's easy to go back even years later and say, I remember like it was just yesterday. In this section that we're in right now, starting with chapter 4, verse 35, through the end of chapter 5, we have four such stories, four such memories, if you will, of things that happen. They are four distinct episodes that are all geared towards helping us understand who Jesus is, and then it begs the question, how are we to respond to him? Now, these four stories have three things in common. The first thing they have in common is that in each one of them, death is sort of there. The threat of death, the presence of death, the reality of death. Death is sort of there in the background as a motif. The second thing they all have in common is that each of these four stories has someone who's in a desperate situation. And then the third thing they all have in common is that in each of these four stories, fear and faith are juxtaposed as possible responses to Jesus. Fear and faith. Fear and faith. Next week, we're going to consider the latter two stories, the story of the woman with the chronic bleeding issue and Jairus' daughter. Today, we're looking at the first two stories. We're looking at the story of Jesus calming the storm and the story of the Gerizim demon, demoniac. Um, these two stories are fascinating. They obviously made a great impression on the apostles, on the disciples, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all contained these two stories. It was a big deal. What's so significant about it? Unfortunately for us, from our vantage point, we are often unimpressed by the miraculous as we read it in the Bible. Oh, the Bible is a book full of these crazy stories. We're relatively nonplussed when we read stories about you know, Jesus healing a leper or people drilling a hole through someone's roof. We just, the significance of that or what it would look like kind of passes us by. But in these stories, we get very visceral reactions from people. They go into profound detail. I mean, if you look at this passage, he's able to remember that there were other boats out there on the sea. He's 
he doesn't just say that Jesus was asleep. He's able to remember where Jesus was asleep, on a cushion, because this was so etched in his mind. Think about it. Think about how it would just stun you. And you wouldn't have a category to describe it if you're standing there and there's a raging storm and someone speaks and all of a sudden it just stops. How would you even process that? Much the same way with these disciples. They couldn't process it. So let's look at this passage real quick. Um, It says they're on the Sea of Galilee. Now, I don't like the fact that it's called the Sea of Galilee. I don't, no one knows why it's called a sea. It's not really a sea. It's a big lake. In fact, it's about half the size of Flathead Lake out in Montana, if you've ever been able to go. Um, at its widest, it's about half as wide as Flathead Lake. At its longest, it's about half as long as Flathead Lake. Okay? It's really not that impressive of a body of water. But it's what's there, and that's where the people are, and so it's what they have at their disposal. Now, the significant thing about the Sea of Galilee, is that it's 700 feet below sea level. And so because of its geographic positioning and with the contours of the earth in that area, it is subject to incredible windstorms. But it's also in that part of the world, very similar to Afghanistan, where the winds come and go on almost clockwork. I remember distinctly in Afghanistan, you could count on the winds picking up around 8 in the morning, And it would be windy and gusty, blowing dust on everything until right about 8 o'clock at night. And then it would calm down. And so we would plan our showers around that so that we we didn't have to walk from the showering facility and get dust blown on us as we came back to to our quarters. So very similar, the Sea of Galilee is subject to violent windstorms, and they come predictably. At night, it's typically more calm there. So even back in the first century, most of the fishermen went out and fished at night. It was not during the day that they would primarily fish. So them being out at night, the fact that there's other boats there, that all makes sense because that's when most fishermen did their thing. Now, a windstorm at night was not an impossibility, but it was certainly out of the ordinary and not what they would expect to have happened. That's why they would have traveled at night, thinking it would have been safer for them to do so. But then, the storm does come. And it's a windstorm. And it records that Jesus is sleeping. Now, we all know that Jesus is fully God and fully man and that he slept. But did you know the only time the Bible portrays or actually writes the words that Jesus was sleeping are in this instance? Jesus was recorded as sleeping in the midst of a huge, terrifying storm. Now, I asked someone in my family, is that significant? Do you think there's significance in the fact that the only time Jesus is mentioned as sleeping is when there's a raging storm? And this person said, and it just means he was really tired. So maybe I'm a preacher boy and I'm just prone to finding significance where there's none to be found. But I actually do think it's significant. Considering the fact that the early church and its artwork would depict the church as an ark in the midst of a turbulent sea and Jesus in the midst of it bringing peace, I think there is, at the risk of psychologizing this away, a reality in which we are to remember that Jesus is with us in the midst of our storms. And even in the moments where we are panicking and, and coming unglued and coming undone, 
Jesus is just fine. R.C. Sproul tells a story. He hates flying. He's famous for hating to fly. And he tells a story uh, that took place when he was flying from a conference with James Montgomery Boyce, who was the pastor of, of 10th Pres in Philly. And sure enough, the plane started hitting turbulence, and R.C. Sproul did all the things that I do, you know, clutching the, you know, clutching the, the, ra- the handrails and, and praying, dear Lord. And he looks over, and Jim is just, James Montgomery Boyce is, is, is half asleep. And, and he's like, oh, I love it when it does this. And R.C. Sproul was like, and you, I think you missed your calling. You should have been an aviator or something. But Jesus, in the midst of all of our storms, in the midst of all of our chaos, is peaceful. He's firmly aware that God is with him. And these disciples, though, they don't figure that out. So they wake him up. And you don't catch it so much in the English, but in the Greek, the language conveys anger, irritation. In other words, they're rebuking him. What on earth? Don't you care? Don't you care? They wake him up. And Jesus, of course, stands up and he speaks. Now, three times this passage uses the Greek word mega. You know, maybe... You've heard of a whatever megaton bomb. You've heard of, some of us have heard of the 80s metal band Mega Death. Mega means big. It means giant. It means huge. And three times this passage uses the Greek word mega. There was a mega storm. Maybe hurricane-grade winds. We don't know. But it was a massive storm. And then Jesus speaks. And then that massive storm is immediately replaced by a mega calm. Now, imagine the turbulent seas caused by an almost hurricane-grade wind replaced instantly by glass. It would be creepy. It would have caused you to probably have a mega fear, which is exactly what they had. And if you, look at verse, uh, if you look at verse 41, the English doesn't really do it justice. The English says, and they were filled with great fear. But in the Greek, it's, and they feared a great fear. In other words, they were terrified. Don't mistake it. As this, oftentimes, you know, we, we like to Christianize all the fear stuff in the Bible. We say, oh, that's just respect. No, this isn't respect. This is terror. They were terrified by the fact that this man that they've eaten with, they've seen him do things, but what kind of a man can make the wind and the sea stop like that? And they're terrified. And then Jesus opens his mouth, and he says, do you still have no faith? Now, what was Jesus asking when he said, do you still have no faith? Was he asking them, are you people of faith? Do you have the emotional, psychological response of trust in something? No. He's asking them, do you still not understand that all the goodness and power of God is in me for you? 
Do you not understand yet, after all you've seen, after all you've done, after all you've experienced, that all of God's power and love is in me for you? How about you? With all you've seen, with all you've experienced, do you still not understand that in Christ, all of God's power and his love is for you? I distinctly remember, I've probably shared this before, I used to worry about money. When we were back in seminary, we were so poor. So poor. And I worried about money incessantly, and I would lose sleep at night. And, and my father-in-law would rebuke me. Everywhere you go, God opens a door. Everywhere you go. You know, every time you think you're out of luck, God, God does something, and, and he's taking good care of you. Why do you keep? Now, I like to think, over years, that I learned that lesson. I certainly don't lose sleep anymore. But have you looked at God's goodness and his mercy towards you and still stubbornly refuse to acknowledge and recognize that all of God's love and his power is in Christ for you? So, that's Jesus calming the storm. But then the boat reaches its destination and round two happens. Out of the tombs comes a man. Now, this area where they sail to on the east side of the Sea of Galilee is known as the Decapolis. Ten cities, okay? Not that there were necessarily literally ten cities, but that's what they called it. It was an area that was primarily Gentile. There were some people who had apostatized from the Jewish faith and they had gone over, but basically it was Gentile area. There were several Roman garrisons over there protecting the eastern flank of their, uh, of their Judean province. In fact, it's quite plausible that this great herd of pigs was primarily to be sold as livestock for the Romans. Because we knew anywhere there's a big military base, there's a whole bunch of uh, support that goes on there. But this is the most descriptive, the most complete picture of a demoniac in the Bible. Of all the depictions of Jesus interacting with demon-possessed people, this is by far the most detailed. They don't just detail the encounter. What they want you to understand is the dehumanizing, degradating, debilitating effect of these demons on the life of this man. There's a whole bunch of people who do not understand that what the devil wants more than anything is to deface and destroy the image of God. We are God's image. And because looking at us reminds us, reminds the devil of God, because we are his image, he wants to deface it. He's not some proud symbol of, of resistance to authoritarian and sticking it to the man like some would have you believe. He wants to destroy. And you see what he's doing in slow motion in this guy. He's not just killing him quick. The demons that have taken over this man are slowly but surely destroying him. 
They've reduced him to something lower than an animal. It says that he's not even able to be bound by chains. Of course, we've heard of superhuman strength attributed to demonic possession. But he's left wandering in the hillside, in the countryside. The people can't deal with him. They're afraid of him. And so he's wandering, and in Matthew 8 and in Luke 8, it tells us that he's, he's naked. Okay, he doesn't have clothes. And the countryside over there, the closest I can describe it to what we have in America might be if you've ever been to the Badlands. Have you been to the Badlands before and seen just how, how inhospitable and rugged that, and how sharp the, the, the cliffs and the drop-offs and the rises are? And just like in the Badlands, there's all these nooks and crannies and little caves well, we sometimes forget just how dirty people were back then. They didn't have a graveyard. So when it says the man was coming out from the tombs, it doesn't mean he came out from behind a headstone. The countryside, out in this desolate area, they would go and they would find whatever little nook, cranny, crevice they could find and use that for the tombs. And they would put their dead bodies in there. And it was a region, even the pagans thought was just a dirty, it had the smell of death. It was just a nasty place. And this man is just wandering around, crying out. Imagine, it says day and night. Imagine a time where there's no planes, there's no cars, there's no noise. So at night, it gets quiet. And you can suddenly hear echoing through the hillside, these, these shrieks. And these cries, it would be horrifying. And this man is gashing himself, cutting himself. Whether the demons are doing it just to destroy or whether it's his last semblance of, of sanity trying to bring relief, we don't know. But the point is, is this man was miserable. And he sees Jesus from afar. And he starts running at him. Now, what would your mindset be if this, there's this far-off naked dude, you know, foaming at the mouth, bloody, just nasty, and he's all of a sudden charging at you? I mean, I can imagine Peter, you know, little quick-draw Peter might have been having his hand on his sword or something. But then he falls prostrate. This man whom they could not subdue because of the demons in him, falls prostrate before Jesus. And it's incredible what he says. He says, what have you to do with me? In other words, why are you bothering me? And he refers to Jesus, not by messianic titles, but in relation to his deity. Jesus, son of the most high God. And then he says, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. In other words, he's saying, he's actually invoking the name of God. In the name of God, do not torment me. Now, why would a demon say, in the name of God, do not torment me? I mean, why would he want to, why would he want to invoke God's name like that? Well, we get a clue. If you remember, this story is echoed in Matthew 8 and in Luke 8. And in Matthew 8, we're told that the demon also adds the word, have you come to torment me before the time? And so in other words, the demons and the forces of hell know that they are doomed. They know that their end is set in stone and their doom and judgment is sure. 
But they also know that it's at a appointed date in the future. And so they're basically, this demon is basically suggesting or accusing Jesus of jumping the gun. And by invoking God's name, he's trying to, he's desperately hoping to escape destruction by reminding Jesus that God's time of judgment has not yet come. He's trying to manipulate Jesus. And he says, what's your name? This is the first time Jesus ever asks a demon its name. The only time that we're recorded. Legion, for we are many. Now, of course, a Roman legion had approximately 6,000 soldiers. Approximately 5,000 of them were infantry. Another 500 were cavalry. And then another 500 were officers, whatever. But basically 6,000 people. That doesn't mean there were 6,000 demons, because even back then, the term was a euphemism for just a great number. And the demon does not want to leave the country. We don't understand why exactly. But it begs to be put into pigs. And Jesus grants permission. Now, what's also interesting to me, and I'm kind of, I take humor in it, is that word that's translated, he gives permission, is also the military word for when an officer dismisses someone. So Jesus has just, as the Son of God, come and had a confrontation with a demon who is so powerful that the people can't stop him, contain him, control him. And just by showing up, the demon knows, he's afraid that he's going to be prematurely judged. And he's begging to not be destroyed. And Jesus, like a superior officer, dismisses him. And he sends them into the pigs. And the pigs rush down and die. Now, is that because the pigs resisted the the demons? Is it because the demons were furious and they just wanted to destroy something? We're not sure why they died. But I do believe it's bound up in the fact that the demons, all they want to do is destroy. And this enabled them to do that without... the resistance of the Son of God affecting the man. And so the people who see this go out and tell everybody. They come and notice the the timing. Verse 15 says, they see the man who was crazy, who was possessed. They see him sitting there clothed in his right mind, having intelligent conversation, and they're afraid. And then they hear what actually went and happened. Just seeing the man restored was a cause of fear for them. And then in verse 18, the man wants to go with Jesus to be with him. That phrase in the Gospel of Mark is discipleship language. Everyone agrees this man man wants to be a disciple. And Jesus says no. And then Jesus does something that's very unique. In fact, uh, a few years ago, we were reading through the Gospel of Mark, and, and Daniel, my son, he, he made this observation. Dad, why is it that every time Jesus does something for someone, he tells them to be quiet? But here, he says to actually go and tell what the Lord has done for you and the mercy that he has had upon you. Here he tells. He says to go and tell. 
And then the man is obedient, and he goes and he tells. Now, why didn't Jesus take him with him? Why did he all of a sudden say, and, and sort of overturning his usual practice, for two reasons. One, if you remember what the Gospels say about Jesus, his ministry was to the people of Israel. He came to testify against the leaders. He came to be a, a prophetic voice to his people that they needed to turn to God. And he came to be the sin offering for the world. Now, in the context of his very specific mission, having a Gentile with him would have been a stumbling block that the people would have just, it would have, been, it, would have shut, it would have been a hindrance to his ministry. But there's another reason why Jesus tells him to go and tell. These Gentiles had no messianic expectations. Jesus spends much of his ministry trying to get people to see that the expectations they have for the Messiah are false. But these Gentiles, they have no expectation. And so there's no threat to his identity for him to be broadcast in that region. But then finally, they want Jesus gone. Jesus is bad for business. So we want him gone. Well, Jesus is leaving. But by leaving this man there to tell the tale, he's left evidence. He's left a testimony to his presence and his power. So, a few observations. I'm reminded of how often we can act like these disciples when, when they awaken Jesus. Don't you care? How often do we forget? We take God's apparent inactivity as a sign of, in, of, of no concern when we are going through the ringer. How often do we utter pretty much these exact words to God? Don't you care? We offer an, an accusative when instead we need to remember like they that in Christ all of God's power and love is for us. The second thing I'm reminded of is that when confronted with holiness, People's reaction is fear. Now, this is an interesting thing because it is pretty much the par for the course. This is the norm. This is mainstream in, in the atheistic, humanistic, secularistic thought is that people invented religion as a crutch to help them face their fears. Okay? They say that it, it is true that that humans are vulnerable. I mean, there are so many things out there that can harm us. There are. Our lives hang by a thread. And primitive peoples, we're told, couldn't cope with that. And so they invented religion as a crutch to help them get them through. But here's the sticking point. All these little primitive religions and all the major religions that have sort of fit that mold, they invent a deity that helps assuage their fears without itself instilling fear. But in Christianity, what we have is a God who, quite frankly, is more terrifying than the thing of which we're afraid. This is not a God that you would invent to be a crutch to help you get over your fears. Because every time someone encounters his power, they're more afraid of him than they were of the thing that they were afraid of before. 
Think about it. Look back of the, of the, of the way of the storm. They may be afraid. They're mostly mad that Jesus is not seeming to be concerned. But they become super afraid, mega afraid, when Jesus does what he does. Think about the demoniac folks. He's, I mean, I would be scared for myself. A guy who can't be contained with chains, and he's running loose. And he's, I mean, I would be terrified. And I'm listening to him howl and screech in the middle of the night. That's, I mean, would you let your kids run around and play? But yet they seem to be sort of able to, to deal with that. But the guy who comes and shows up and is more powerful than the demons, that's too much. You got to go. That kind of power we don't want around here. It'll mess up what we got going on. But I'm also reminded of the fact, as I look at this story, that so often the herdsman's reaction to this situation mirrors our own. They wanted to help the guy. Luke 8 specifies that they were trying to chain him to keep him from harming himself. But as soon as helping him cut into their bottom line, i.e. their profit went down into the drink, they didn't want any part of it. In the mid-1800s, Calvin Stowe, uh, he was Harriet Beecher Stowe's husband, famously wrote the book Uncle Tom's Cabin. And so he, he was far eclipsed by her in terms of fame. But they went over to England, and England was so proud of themselves. They had, you know, long ago abolished slavery. Oh, you, you backwards Americans still having slavery. Oh, and Calvin Stowe delivered a message in which he said, do you realize that nearly 80% of all the cotton produced in the American South comes to you guys? And you guys could end American slavery if you simply stopped buying cotton. And guess what the reaction was? They booed him out of the place. And it's not limited to that era and to those people. We have all these social justice warriors who, who protest against the, 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 the illicit sex trade and all that stuff. Meanwhile, the very things that drive that market are consumed in vociferous amounts. Oh, we want to help, but not when it's going to cut into my bottom line. And Jesus is too vigorous of a Savior to let us get by with our nonchalance. People often want, every commentary I looked at, oh, how could he have let the destruction of 2,000 pigs happen? That's an ecological disaster. Because 2,000 pigs are nothing compared to the worth of a person. Jesus will stop at nothing to redeem. Where are you at? Where are you at? And there's a great bit of truth, though. These folks, they witness Jesus' power, and they're afraid. And let me be honest with you. That's a legitimate response for a sinner to have in the face of a holy God. But Jesus wants you to know that if you're his on the inside, and all that power is at work for you, your response should not be one of terror or dismay, but one of faith. 
all that he does, the saving work that he uses to pull people out of the dregs, all the stuff that he does to make you able to survive, it's meant to instill faith. So what will you do? How will you respond to Jesus and his working? Will you have fear? Will you become angry when his saving someone cuts into your bottom line? Will you refuse to see that Jesus and his power and his love is all yours? What will you do? I think that it's Mark's desire that you would look at your own circumstance and remember Jesus, the Son of God, gave himself for us so that no matter what extenuating circumstance we may be going through, even if the threat of death is real and there's a clear and present danger to our well-being, we can nonetheless be steady in the storm because Jesus is everything for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. You are more to us than we could ever fathom. Forgive us for when we are fearful and we forget. Help us to be like this man who is obedient to go and share his story of what you had done for him. You have done something for each of us. Help us to be faithful to tell it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.